I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 13. We are engaged in a study of the parables, and there are seven kingdom kingdom parables in the 13th chapter of Matthew, and we're considering the first of those parables, the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 9, and then picking up again in reading verses 18 through 23. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And great multitudes gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the multitude was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, And the birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold some 60, and some 30. We'll see here in the parable of the soils, the Lord Jesus Christ likened the various ways people respond to gospel preaching to various kinds of soils. Some hear and do not respond in faith because their hearts are hard, and Satan steals the word before it can germinate. This is the hard ground hearer. Others hear the word and receive it with joy, but their faith is temporary because they have no firm root in themselves. So when they face affliction or persecution because of the word, they fall away 
and produce no fruit. These are the stony ground hearers. Both of these kind of hearers we have considered in previous messages. Well, this morning Jesus introduces us to a third kind of hearer. Now, living in mostly rural areas, his original hearers would have been familiar with the choking effect of weeds upon a sown field. Many of them might have been farmers themselves. The thorny ground hearer fails to produce fruit from gospel preaching because the seed of the word of God is choked out by distracting concerns. So the word sown in his heart brings no fruit to maturity. Again, we meet with our Lord's underlying principle, which is as true in gospel preaching as it is in seed planting. The growth of the seed always depends upon the quality of the soil. The condition of our heart determines how we hear and respond to the preaching of God's word. So we're immediately faced with a question. So what does our our heart tell us? What does the fruit, if there is any, in our life tell us? What kind of hearer are we? Are we the hard ground hearer? Are we the stony ground hearer? Are we the thorny ground hearer, which we're going to consider this morning? Or are we the good ground hearer? So what does our Lord teach us? about the thorny ground hearer. As we consider his word this morning, we're going to look first of all at a brief figurative description of the thorny ground hearer. Pretty much speaks for itself. Secondly, and spend most of our time there with the choking concerns and cares of the thorny ground hearer, or what we might call the distracted hearer. And then we will look at the eventual failure of the thorny ground hearer, And then we'll conclude our time as we consider the abiding message of the thorny ground hearer. Notice, first of all, a brief figurative description of the thorny ground hearer. Jesus gives it to us in chapter 13 and verse 7. And others, that is, other seeds, fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Well, brethren, how common is this sort of hearer in today's busy world. And apparently, he was common in the first century when Jesus Christ, the greatest sower, ever sowed, ever preached the Word of God. And just like the cases of the former soils, the thorny ground here, like the hard ground here, and the stony ground here, he hears the Word. It dents his eardrums. He might even entertain it. But like the stony ground here, he seems to be impacted by the gospel. In fact, he seems to make progress in the way of Christ with hopeful fruit growing on the stalk of his Christian profession. But sadly, such hearers fail to bring Christian fruit to maturity and so prove themselves, like the others before them, lost at last, And for this reason, it's because distractions from this world choke out the word of Christ. 
Well, let me repeat again our Lord's underlying principle, because it is always true wherever the biblical gospel is preached. It's true here. It's true everywhere this morning. It's true everywhere that the biblical gospel has been preached. And it is this, that the the growth of the seed always depends upon the quality of the soil. So we have to ask ourselves, what kind of heart soil do we have when the seed is cast out? Does it come in? Is it welcomed? Is it fertilized by grace? Does it put down roots? Is it putting out fruit? A soil clogged with weeds strangles the gospel seed, as we're going to see. So that's a brief figurative description of the thorny ground here. Notice, secondly, the choking cares of the thorny ground here. The one who's distracted by the things of this life. And what are these distracting cares? Well, brethren, we misunderstand Jesus' illustration here. If we picture the sower just casting his seed into a tangled thicket of weeds, that there's growth above the soil, there's weeds, and he just throws the the gospel seed, as it were, into the soil that's all covered with a tangle of weeds. No, weeds must be cleared before there is any sowing. It's a waste of seed not to clear the soil. Notice carefully how his words are stated in verse 7. He states that other seed fell among the thorns, and thorns, the thorns grew up with it. So assume that the ground has been cleared. The seed has been cast into the soil. There is something coming up, and the weeds are coming up with it. Jeremiah's call to repentance assumes this same imagery. It uses it. Jeremiah 4, verses 4 and 5. Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and remove the foreskins of your heart. Make your heart ready to receive the word. Cut off the foreskin of unbelief, of doubts and fears, and listen with both ears. Circumcise your heart. Till up, break up the fallow ground. You see, gospel seed germinates only in repentant hearts. So the blame for barrenness then lay not in the sower or in the seed, but in the quality of the soil. The heart of the thorny ground here, you see, is encumbered by cares. It's not broken up by the plowshare of repentance. There hasn't been any deep heart work in preparing the soil to receive the word. So it meets a tangled mess of weeds underneath the ground. So he's unresponsive. He's unresponsive to the word. Because he's distracted by the things of this world. And so the seed of the word proves ultimately to be unfruitful because his heart remains uncircumcised. In Matthew, 
Jesus describes these distractions as the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. In Mark, in the parallel, he adds to these the desires for other things. In Luke, he summarizes them as worries and riches and pleasures of this life. Now, brethren, understand that not all of these distractions exert equal choking effect necessarily upon those that hear the word. But any one of them or combination of them will prove lethal if not repented of. A distracted heart, you see, is inhospitable for the germination and growth of the gospel seed. All of these things tangle around it and choke it out so it doesn't bear any fruit. Let's consider these deadly distractions. First of all, the gospel seed in thorny ground hearers is choked by the worries of this world. It's choked by the worries of this world. You see, a distracted heart cannot nurture the seed of the word because it is fixated upon the things of the world, literally the anxieties of this age. And we know something about this at home, don't we? About distractions. You may be leading family worship. And your kids are just, they're thinking about anything, or they're, they're wanting to play with their toys. And they're not hearing a word that dad is saying. He's trying to introduce them to Jesus Christ. But they want to play with their dinosaur or something. But we can be like that too. Old people can be distracted just like young people. In fact, those are the ones that Jesus is primarily addressing. You see, an overwhelming concern for the things of time occupy this person's thinking, obscuring the great issues of eternity. The things of this age, you see are all tangling up around the seed of the word. The things of this age, its joys and sorrows, its values and standards, its hopes and fears. You see, they dominate this man's thinking rather than preparing for the age to come. That one day he's going to die and meet God. He's going to have to give an account for his life in this world. You see, his priorities are all backward. He's living for time and not for eternity. He doesn't realize that the days are fast slipping away. And he's standing with his toes upon the threshold of eternity. And he knows not what a day may bring forth. And he's not ready to enter the presence of God. Many churchgoers are consumed with worry. Worry about their health and about their temporal welfare. These are inordinate concerns. They're right in their proper place. But these things are consuming to them. Not a few are distressed about the state of the economy, of climate change, politics, the threat of world war, human rights, animal rights, things that mean little to nothing in the light of the great issues of eternity. For them, this life is all there is. We live and we die and there is no more. 
And so they want to go for the gusto. They want to live for everything that, that they can gain. These worries are weeds that choke out the gospel seed. If I may be permitted to flip the well-known phrase, these folk are so earthly-minded that they're no heavenly good. It's just the things of this world that occupy their thinking. Now, it's true that godly saints, like Martha, may struggle at times with worry and give undue attention to secondary matters, which one of us can't confess that to be true in our own lives. But yet, even the distraction of this good woman expressed a real desire to serve the Lord. She just had misplaced priorities. Yet, this is not the case with the thorny ground here. This isn't temporal or occasional. This is... All the time. It's consuming. The thorns of worldly worries leave no room in his heart for the love of Christ or even care for his own soul. He is the double-minded man who is unstable in all of his ways. He's unable to please the Lord. He has no desire, really, to help himself in those things that ultimately matter. So the gospel seed in thorny ground here is just choked by the worries of this world. Secondly, the gospel seed in thorny ground here is just choked by the deception of riches. Now, we must understand that riches are deceitful, though riches in themselves, apart from us, are neutral. You see, it's not money, it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. You see, what makes riches deceitful is not the riches themselves, but it's the magnetism of our covetous hearts toward those things. Our hearts readily make an idol out of wealth and possessions. What did Jesus say in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23? For from without, out of the heart of men, from within, excuse me, from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You see, the problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. We can't blame love of riches upon the riches themselves. We have to blame it upon our own covetous hearts. John Wesley spoke on the deception of riches. He says, Deceitful indeed, for they smile and betray, kiss and smite into hell. They put out the eyes, harden the heart, steal away all the life of God, fill the soul with pride, anger, love of the world, make men enemies to the whole cross of Christ, and all the while are in eagerly desired and vehemently pursued even by those who believe there is a God. You ask the covetous if they believe in God, many of them will say yes. They may say they believe in the God who's created all things, 
But their God is what they can gain, you see. Here's the point. Riches deceive because they promise what they cannot provide. They promise pleasure and peace, true happiness and fulfillment in life. But what do they deliver? They deliver only bewilderment and misery. You live for these things. You place your heart upon them. Your heart is built to thrill in nothing less than the God of the universe, the Redeemer of God's people. But it lives for these baubles and bangles, these toys that perish with the using. Only the gospel provides lasting treasures and pleasures. Didn't we sing, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. So the gospel seed in thorny ground here is is choked by the worries of the world, by the deception of riches, and finally it's choked by the pursuit of pleasure. And this is really the unholy trinity in the heart of the thorny ground here. A heart distracted by this world's worries and deceived by its riches naturally pursues its pleasures. Because this is all there is to live for. The mouth may say differently, but the life is dedicated to pleasure. Tragically, it seeks from this world what it can only find in God. The word translated pleasure is always used in a negative connotation in the New Testament. It describes a lifestyle of indulgence and a lack of control of natural desires and appetites. It characterizes the wicked and immoral lives of false uh, teachers in 2 Peter 2 and verse 13, and of sensual and selfish men in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, and then of the pleasure-mad unbeliever, that is who we are in Christ, many of us, in Titus 3 and verse 3, before God reveals true riches to us in Christ, and real pleasure. In Mark, the choking effect of desires for other things, our Lord refers to in Luke as the pleasures of this life. These include all the passions or longings, sensual, worldly, the pleasures of this life. One writer says, It is the world of sense drowning the world of spirit. Not surprisingly, John warns us against loving the world and the things of the world. The apostle doesn't mince his words. He says it very plainly. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. No matter what else they might say in their profession, they don't truly love God. Jesus said we are to crucify our lusts, Indeed, we are to take up our cross and follow Him. We're to leave everything behind that would be an impediment to being a a pilgrim headed for glory. You see, we cannot give our heart to the world and yet love the Lord. We cannot serve two masters. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be. 
And our hearts will always gravitate to the things that bring us pleasure. Those who sit under the word may give themselves to the pursuit of pleasure and the desire for other things. That's what Jesus is saying here. They are in churches. Such vices destroyed Judas. They exposed Demas and proved the undoing of Ananias and Sapphira. Failure to mortify this vice is a sure prescription for disaster. You see, this evil lurks in our hearts. It quietly rots our souls if we don't repent of it. It sneaks up on us. It takes hold of us. It turns us every which way but loose and won't let us go. In fact, some professing Christians may appear very bold for Christ and They may even endure some manner of persecution for Jesus' sake and yet prove fruitless in the end. Jesus' teaching is as pointed as it is plain. In the case of many gospel hearers, you see the world overwhelms the word. About the deadening influence of the world upon the word, Puritan Thomas Manton observes, It is the world that makes us begrudge the strictness of Christ's commandments. When the rich young ruler heard Jesus' command to abandon the idol of his riches, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It is the world that tempts us to live in a compromised way, as other careless persons do around us. It is the world that makes us little regard heavenly things and urge a life of pomp and ease here. End of quote. Brethren, it's not surprising, but rather should be expected that the false doctrine of the carnal Christian would gain popularity among pleasure-seeking professing Christians in today's worldly compromised church though they probably wouldn't come right out and say it, they may teach by failure to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God that you might find true Christians as thorny ground hearers. They live for the things of this world, but they have fire insurance at the end, you see, because they made a decision for Jesus. It doesn't matter that they're living in sin, It's obvious that it's the mighty dollar that they bow their knee to. But they go to church. They might even go also to Sunday school. They may have a a good standing in the church. But their heart is a tangle of concerns about the things of this world. Brethren, be sure of it. Jesus does not regard worldly, covetous, pleasure-seeking, fruitless, professing Christians as true believers. So we've seen a, a brief description of the thorny ground here, the choking cares and concerns of the, of the thorny ground here, the distracted professing Christian. But notice thirdly, the eventual failure of the thorny ground here. The eventual failure. The worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke, strangle the word 
and it becomes unfruitful. Luke says, they bring no fruit to maturity. Remember Jesus' lesson in this parable. The growth of the seed always depends upon the quality of the soil. The condition of our heart will determine how we will hear and respond to the preaching of God's Word. You see, the unnourished seed in the barren heart of many hearers produces only spiritual stillbirth. A person may have a name that he is alive, but in reality he is dead. He has a profession of faith, but he's a fruitless professor after all. Such persons may hold a form of godliness, but in their lives they deny its power. I offer this observation. I was talking with one of you the other day. I said if this superficial and short-lived stony ground here who is flush with excitement early and yet soon abandons the faith through affliction and persecution represents many younger professing Christians. The thorny ground here may picture many older professing saints who remain longer in the church, maybe to the end of their lives. But because they are distracted by worldliness and riches and pleasures, they prove themselves to be false professing Christians in the end. The thorny ground here may not be as readily detected as the previous two hearers. The hard ground here and the stony ground here. In fact, the thorny ground here may even possess notable spiritual gifts. We see that in Hebrews chapter 6. They tasted of the power of the age to come and of the word of God. They look like they're genuine Christians. But it's all a sham. Though the thorny ground here may even possess notable spiritual gifts like Judas and Demas, those things mask the deadness of their soul. He may be marked by a commendable busyness in the church, a Noteworthy usefulness in the gospel ministry at home and abroad, but these things by themselves are no sure indication of spiritual vigor and true faithfulness. An unseen blight or worm or entangling thorns may strangle the kernel of the gospel seed and escape the notice of others. The husk of religious activity visible above the ground may hide Deadness beneath the surface. Listen to our Lord. Matthew chapter 7, verses 19 through 23. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There he's talking about true Christian fruit. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Jesus 
doesn't say, no, you didn't do these things. They did do these things. And I suggest that even the way they approach the Lord signals a merit mentality. Didn't we do all these things, therefore we deserve to go to heaven? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, that lawlessness may have been hidden from the eyes of others, but not from the eyes of God. He sees everything. So let's review what Jesus teaches about the three false professing Christians who hear the word, but do not bear fruit unto eternal life. The hard ground here is fruitless because he was rootless. He hears the word, but Satan steals the seed of the gospel before before it can put down roots. The shallow ground hearer also hears the word. He even demonstrates a flowery profession early on, but he bears no fruit because of the shallowness of his roots. Jesus teaches that the thorny ground here puts down roots, but he brings no fruit to maturity. Luke uses the term for stillbirth. To bring to maturity means to bring it alive. This is, he brings no fruit to maturity. It's stillborn, Luke says. When you open his ripest ears of corn, you find a cob. Yes, but no kernels. His rootstock has been strangled by a competing root system. He has the stalk and leaves and flowers of a Christian profession, but he brings no fruit, distinctively Christian fruit, to maturity. Our Lord teaches that only fruitful Christians are genuine Christians. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather or pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man brings out of the good treasure of his heart what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil. You see, the problem is in the heart. This third soil, then, is not as many would conclude today a carnal Christian. Men are known by their fruits. Because a true Christian possesses the indwelling Holy Spirit, he will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, he will not be perfect. That's not what we're saying. But his gospel root will be proved by his Christian fruit. The Spirit of Christ will be evidently at work in him. Indeed, he's a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And I suggest they continue to come because he's growing in grace and conformity to the image of Christ. He's adding to his faith moral excellence and to that knowledge and self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1. God's work in him will be perfected until the day of Christ Jesus. He is a work in progress. He will prove an overcomer at last, to use Jesus' language in the Revelation. The word will bear fruit 
in his life, as Jesus says here, some 100, some 30, uh, 60, and some 30. There will be different levels of fruitfulness, but there will be fruitfulness. But sadly, this is not the case with the thorny ground here. He hears the word. He even shows some signs that the word has germinated in his heart, but he brings no fruit to maturity. The seed sown in his heart eventually proves stillborn. Tragically, many such persons in the church think themselves true Christians to their dying day. Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things? Jesus exposes formalists and hypocrites in one of the seven churches in Revelation. They apparently had a good name with outsiders and even better one in their own eyes. But Jesus didn't pull any punches in his letter to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3 and verse 1. I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. Even Orthodox believers who know the truth and love the truth may yet be dead to the life-changing power of the truth. Holding to a, an Orthodox catechism and confession of faith is no indication that you're a true Christian. They may engage in worthy Christian work and yet be dead to God. Spurgeon commenting, on Revelation 3.1, he says, The bulk of the members were formalists and hypocrites, yet the church kept up its reputation, and it does not appear that any serious heresy had to be contended with. How beautiful may a, a fruit appear upon the outside and yet be rotten within. Have you ever looked at a beautiful apple? You failed to turn it around the backside. You didn't see the little hole. You bit into it. And you, not only was there a juicy apple, there was a juicy worm in there. You've seen trees come down in windstorms or hit by lightning. And they look good on the outside, but they were punky on the inside. It was invisible to, to men's eyes. So according to our Lord, a professing Christian who seems to embrace the Word of God, but then lives a worldly life, whether secret or known, who produces no spiritual fruit, Jesus says he's no Christian at all. Jesus cursed the fig tree precisely because it was fruitless, picturing the empty religion of apostate Israel that rejected the word of Christ, a withering that prophesied his coming judgment upon the fruitless nation. So Jesus would warn us today, let us examine ourselves to see whether we are truly in the faith. And I'm going to seek to be brief. I have a number of concluding applications here. Let's look at the abiding message of the thorny ground here for us. Two things. First of all, let us examine ourselves for the characteristic signs of a care-choked heart. How may we know that, that the thorns of temporal and worldly concerns are beginning to choke out our spiritual life? Benjamin Keach's exposition of this parable provides us with ten such signs. He, he asks, answers the question, how may a person know when his care is excessive, inordinate, and sinful? He does so with these signs, and I've summarized some of them. But we need to note that though true Christians will struggle at times with these concerns, 
These concerns do not dominate his thinking like they do the worldly false professing Christian. First of all, obsession with the things of the world so that there's hardly any room for better thoughts in our hearts. And this is united with a corresponding disinterest in eternal things. It's just the things of time, the things of this world, fill their thoughts. There's really no time for the things of the world to come. Secondly, distractions by temporal concerns during public worship. Yes, we're distracted at times in worship, are we not? But there's no repentance there. There's no redirection of their thinking. God, help me to focus my attention upon the Word of God. I'm thinking about all these other things that may be legitimately thought of on other days, but not today. Thinking about those things, maybe evidence in, in looking at our phone or daydreaming or other such things. Thirdly, disorder and confusion. Earthly things and temporal things typically crowd our minds. Sleeplessness because of anxiety over financial concerns or mundane matters. You just can't get to sleep because of all of these things that are going on in your life. You don't pray about it. You just worry about it. Grossly misplaced values that we're concerned more to gain earthly than eternal riches. There's nothing wrong with seeking to have a comfortable portfolio, but this, it dominates this person's thinking. Ingratitude for God's blessings in this life, coupled with an insatiable desire for more. You're just not happy. Instead of being grateful, you're grumbling. Furthermore, hindrance to prayer because of fixation upon the things of this world is evidence in various ways. We rarely think about our soul and its needs. We think little about what God has done for our soul. We find it difficult to meditate upon spiritual things because all these temporal and material things crowd out spiritual thoughts. Making excuses for absenting yourself from or even forgetting public worship. Got more important things to do. Oh, it's Sunday. Well, maybe next week. Dominating concerns that prevent undistracted worship of God. We don't enter into worship at all. Our body is here, but our mind's somewhere else. Finally, cares that lead to disbelief and distrust in God and doubt in His faithfulness, which leads to questionable business dealings or even outright theft. God is not in all of our thoughts, not in our worship, in our activities out in this world. And we'll steal. We'll be unethical. It's because our thoughts are elsewhere rather than upon the things of God. Secondly, let us by faith employ proven cures to mortify our heart-choking cares. And again, I borrow from our old friend, Mr. Keach, in his wise pastoral advice, he answers the question, how shall we get rid of sinful care? And he provides eight helpful counsels. First, consider how evil your distracting cares are and how dishonorable it is to God for you to give your heart to earthly things. We're to give our hearts to... Solomon says to his son, give me thy heart. That's what God says to us as his spiritual sons. Give me your heart. 
If he doesn't have our heart, it doesn't matter else what he has of us. He doesn't have the real us. Consider that God is your heavenly father and that you are his child. Remember your pedigree and your privileges. Remember what a father you have. Will he not provide all that you need? You seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He'll provide you all of these things. Don't worry about him. So if he cares for us, why should we not hear him who loves us this way? Thirdly, live by faith in God's promises. Psalm 37, 3, trust in the Lord and do good. The basis of doing good is trust in the Lord. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Or as it says in the margin, feed on his faithfulness. In Psalm 34, verse 10, they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. That's why when we seek first his kingdom, he provides all of these things. If, he may, if we make his will our concern, he'll make our needs his care. Fourthly, believe in the all-sufficiency of God. I am God Almighty. The conviction was enough to support Abraham during distracting trials. How could he take his beloved son to Mount Moriah if he did not believe that God Almighty would be all-sufficient? He believed that if I have to kill Isaac, the son of the promise, God will raise him from the dead. It's not for me to figure out these things. It's just for me to obey the will of God and trust that the, the, this God who is righteous will do what's right. Fifthly, consult the wisdom of God if you would be content with the portion he gives you. Notice, with the things you have, not what others have, or what you've had in the past, but what you have now. Learn to be like the Apostle Paul. Be content in whatever situation you find yourself. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Sixthly, remember that God is faithful, who has promised he will help you and never leave you or forsake you. He says right in that same context, Hebrews 13 and verse 5, He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I am always with you. I will not abandon you. I will not leave you as orphans. See, sometimes you, you think that you don't have me, but I always have you. I have you in the palm of my hand. Seventhly, call to remembrance your former trials when God helped you and revealed himself to you. In this way, David was relieved when fearful amidst many trials. He would be in the midst of a trial and he didn't see the end of it, but he remembered God's faithfulness in the past and that gave him hope in the present for the future. This God hasn't changed He's still my God. He's bailed me out in the past. He's not going to leave me to perish in the present. I have a hope for the future. When I arise, I shall share His likeness. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. And finally, live much in the thought of death. Because there comes a harvest. 
And this will put our temporal concerns in perspective. Lord, enable me to be a fruitful Christian, both for my encouragement, for the encouragement of others, and ultimately for the glory of your name. Let me not be a fake and a phony professing Christian, but Lord, by your grace and help, cause the fruit of a genuine Christian profession to hang heavy upon my branches for your glory. Brethren, we don't truly live until we're prepared to die. We need to say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ, and therefore we can say to die is gain. Let's pray. Lord Father, we, I fear, galloped through these things this morning. But I pray that these truths would stick to our hearts like Velcro, we wouldn't be able to shake them off, nor would we want to. Lord, speak to us. Our hearts are magnets to the, for the things of this world. Indeed, our hearts, as Calvin has rightly said, are idle factories. Lord, you have made our heart for you, and we cannot satisfy a, a heart that is fulfilled only by spiritual needs with earthly and temporal things. So, Lord, cause us to run after you. Fix our eyes upon you, who are the author and finisher of our faith and the object of our faith everywhere in between. Lord, make us to be that kind of people, that we might bear fruit that proves that your grace is powerful within us, that others would see and desire the Lord Jesus themselves. For we pray this in his glorious name. Amen.